0: I'm Tom from the Ballpark Bros. Here's Mike. This next presentation on the 4-Eyed Radio Network is brought to you by Revenge Lover. Stand out from the crowd. For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention the podcast for 10% off on your order. Hello, this is Steve. And this is Eric. And you're listening to the Cast. I'm declaring a state of emergency. All personnel restricted to base.
1: Everything seen and heard in that room is top secret. Yes, sir.
0: He didn't tell you what's inside the sphere, did he? You didn't tell him, did you? You didn't tell him what's inside the sphere. And how would you know that, Beth? I am not a warrior. Very soon, you will be. We're going to the jungle. Amy wants green drop drink. No. Amy wants green drop drink. All
1: right, all right
0: where they
1: were married god creates dinosaurs god destroys dinosaurs god creates man man destroys god man creates dinosaurs dinosaurs eat man woman inherits the earth
0: All right, Eric. Are you ready? Um, have you enjoyed your reading of the Andromeda Strain? I have indeed, actually. Um, yes, this
1: was um, this is a long time. This is a long time coming. I'm excited to uh, to be recording this. Quite frankly, um, we talked about this project uh, for the first time a long time ago. <laughs>
0: Yeah, three years. Uh, three years in the making uh, sounds like a good number to me to, uh, for us to stick to. I know at least that it was about two years ago we actually put up the website for it, so it's been three years since we've been talking about this. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of amazing. I'm, I, I remember it first came up, I believe you were a guest
1: on uh, Socially Awkward Studios, mm-hmm. and we were talking about something and the uh, inability for Hollywood to, to make a decent movie out of Crichton novels came up. Yes. And we we thought it would be a great uh, full podcast, you know, because we didn't want to waste the entire show there talking about it. Um, We thought there's so much material. This is is a show in and of itself. We could definitely make this a show. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of life changes on both sides got in the way to
0: delay and delay and delay. But – Things have settled down a bit, at least on my side. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, th- I think that's just it. Things have finally settled down a bit, and it unfortunately took us now living um, from half an hour away to a uh, four-hour flight away, since we're in <laughs> totally different states now. So yeah. a lot has changed in two years, yes.
1: <laughs> yep, indeed. That, well, that was part of my life changes there, was uh, I spent the uh, better part of two months moving across the country. This was the move from hell. Um, Moved from the Phoenix metro area of Arizona out to uh, adjective Toledo, Ohio, and um, <laughs> it's it's cold here, although we've been having a very, very mild uh, winter this, this time around from what I'm being told. Everybody's telling me, oh my gosh, it's so warm this winter, it's so warm. You guys uh, aren't experiencing a real Ohio winter yet. Evidently, we're supposed to get that in February and March. I don't know.
0: Yeah, and you're thinking to yourself, I don't want to experience a real <laughs> Ohio winter. Yeah, that's uh, no thank you. We had but one I, uh, big
1: snowstorm already, and as far as I'm concerned, that that one was plenty.
0: It was enough, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> All right, well, this episode, we are going to talk about the and the Andromeda strain, and let's actually talk a little bit about the Crichton cast in itself. What we want to do is discuss the book and movie adaptions, and in this case, also TV miniseries adaption. Um, And there are at least 12 of them to start with, and we're going to continue on from there and see where this all leads. So each episode will be on a specific book that Michael Crichton uh, wrote in his career.
1: Indeed, and in this case, we actually have a, uh, a wealth of material, because we have a book, we have a movie, and we have the television miniseries. A two-part miniseries, so literally the miniest of series you can have. But uh, Yes,
0: I I was worried when it said miniseries that this was like, you know, six episodes, eight episodes. I was like, oh, this is just a really long movie is what this is. So
1: Yeah, when I when I first found it, I was like, okay, TV miniseries. And then the files I was finding originally were, you know, in the, the information I was finding originally was telling me that it was only like two and a half hours. I was like, that doesn't seem right. And then right. when I got the DVD, I realized, oh, okay, so it is just two parts. It was, it was just split into two parts so they could tell the full story.
0: Right, yep. So a little bit of background on this. This was the first book that Michael Crichton wrote under his name. He had written four or five books previous to this under a pseudonym, uh, but this is the first one actually released in his name and the first one that was then made into a movie two years after its uh, um, publishing. Which is
1: pretty quick turnaround time. Um, You typically don't see that quick a turnaround time in unestablished authors. You know, you see authors who have put out 20 books already and then have had half of those turned into movies already. Yeah, you might see they write a book and then the next year the movie comes out. Right. But usually it takes a while for an author to, to sell their movie rights um even authors who are intent on doing that in the first place it took fleming a while to get bond made into a movie even though that was his intention
0: after writing the very first book he's like i need to get these made into movies that's where the money is (laughs) interesting i did not realize that but uh, you know he knew where the money was at so so it's it's kind of surprising that this was turned around so quickly into a movie
1: Mm -hmm. but uh you know, not necessarily surprising when you consider uh, Crichton's work. you know as we said, a lot of his books have been turned into movies because his writing does kind of lend itself to that, I think.
0: I I completely agree. One of the things that I love about his writing is how scientific it all seems, whether it's fake science or real science or anything like that. The fact that even in this book from 1969, there are quote-unquote printouts and images uh, from what had happened then Mm -hmm. is a really neat way to uh, not only break up a book, but make the book seem even more realistic. You know, when we have the printout of the monkey when he's first getting— um, poisoned with Andromeda, and you see it like spreading through from his lungs outward. Uh, that was just helped to solidify the story in your mind, and he does that in all of his books. Yeah, it's uh,
1: it's very interesting because he does know the science. So when there's real science in there, it's good science, and mm-hmm. then he embellishes into the science fiction, and it's so seamless that if you don't know. Then you wouldn't know there's, Exactly There's sometimes When you're like Oh wait is, is that part Like I had to look up A couple of things I um, did <laughs> it, <clears throat> Honestly the, in, in the book um, You know When they get near the end There's a, a spot Where they're talking about This universal antibiotic That is so powerful It kills literally everything So it'll Kellison kill. Yes Yes I, was I did like the same thing on it <laughs> I was like Oh wow I'd never heard of that before And then I looked up. Oh fictional antibiotic Created by Michael, Michael Crichton Oh okay I get it now
0: <laughs> But because he talked about the drug trials and what it did to your body it made total sense like oh yeah no if it kills every single cell organism and then you go off of it you're gonna die because your body has to have a natural immunity to something and you got i mean everything made sense uh so i totally thought the same thing and i had to google callus and so think about people (laughs) in 1969 who didn't have any way to confirm whether this is real or not they're going to ask their you know local doctor uh if they wanted to you know if this is a real drug I wonder
1: how many doctors got sick of that. Uh, I can just imagine the doctor shows up. I I, I got, I got the sniffles. Uh, Can you just give me that calison?
0: Yeah, can I? Can I prescribe me some calison? Excuse me.
1: Here, I read this book, and they hand him the book, and he's like, "This is a fiction book, guy. What are you doing?"
0: Well, and I, I love it. Even in the beginning, it was in the first um, – when they first uh, enter into the laboratory and they're going through everything, uh, when he talks about the female voice that is the computer. And mm-hmm. he even said his, her name was Miss Gladys Stevens, and she's a 64-year-old woman who lives in Omaha and records her voice as, for systems like those that are on bases and labs. I mean, he mm-hmm. just goes into detail that makes you think that's a real thing. And uh, that's what makes these books so engrossing. And this particular book, compared to some of the other ones, I believe, is really all about the science of discovery. Because if you'll know the books versus especially the miniseries, there's not a strong antagonist in this. Like You do know that this Andromeda strain is killing people, but it doesn't seem like it's a huge sense of urgency because you're stuck in the lab with these five people. You don't necessarily know everything that's going on on the outside world.
1: Right. And also the way the book is written. This particular book is written almost in a documentary style. It's almost written as if it's a a file that you're reading, like a top secret file that you're, you're getting access to. And that the narration as far as what people are thinking and doing is being added by this one person who was just trying to explain, this is what I think they were thinking while this other stuff was going on, but here are all the facts, and that's why you get the printouts. That's why it makes sense to have those printouts and uh, that type of information. And what I really like is that he's able to include all of this actual scientific information and explanations without the story getting bogged down by it. Too many times I see authors who try to get too much into detail, and the book can get bogged down by it. Uh, mm-hmm. George R. R. Martin, I'm I'm looking at you right now. We don't need yes. three pages on what a tree looks like, <laughs> right? You get it? It's no, a tree. That's
0: very true. You know what? You do a good descriptive in a paragraph or two, and then we move on. But I mean, it just soaks you back into it a little bit more. Or Tom uh, Clancy anytime he's describing a weapon of any type. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't need to know all this stuff, and I I feel like I now know how to take apart and put back together this whole weapon. Thank you very much, Tom. Yeah.
1: Yes. It's like, hey, great books, great story, but it can get bogged down in times when you find, you figure out where the author's passion is really quickly. Um, right. With Crichton, you get that. You can definitely tell, okay, yes, he definitely has a medical background. You would know that without knowing anything about him. He does have a medical background. He was a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but you would know that even without knowing that just by reading the books because the the facts are there. But, again, it's not overwhelming. It's not. It doesn't bog you down. It doesn't make you go, ugh okay, enough with this. It's just enough to keep you interested and keep the story real while still moving along the actual story.
0: Yeah, and to your point, like the fact that it's introduced as if it's science and this is after the fact and this is based off of reports and everything... just adds to that realism that's one of the reasons I really love the book World War War Z is because it's not an author like telling a story he's just reading these and you know that World War Z is complete fictional but he makes it seem like this is real and these are just people's stories and you can put together what you want uh, with it
1: I need to read that one that's one that's been on my list for a while to to pick up and check out I saw the movie Mm -hmm. I understand that it is nothing like the book at all in any way other than the name Right, so I'm very interested to to read the book and uh, compare because hey, that's what we like to do. That's that's exactly <laughs> it, and
0: you, and you should because yes, the the movie is great in its own right, but the book is just amazing because it what it is is it's uh, historical uh, facts and people in their interview process of what happened that they survived this world war z with the zombies um but it's a good book but it's not what we're talking about (laughs) (laughs) um on that though i did find out that michael Crichton wrote this book after reading the ipcris files when he was in england and the ipcris file is a book that similar to this is based on what they want you to believe is a true story about the first atomic uh, soviet's atomic bomb and it's this guy who's telling his story from these secret files he knows is if he's a spy that worked there at the time and he was so enthralled with the fact that they made this seem real when it wasn't, that that's what got him into wanting to write Andromeda Strain, which ended up taking him three years to write.
1: Yeah, and that is interesting as well, that it took that long. I know some authors take a long time to write books and others Mm -hmm. are able to, to crank them out really quickly but I think the the detail, the, uh, the attention to detail that we see in this book uh, kind of explains why it took a little bit longer um, <clears throat> but it was definitely worth it it was definitely a, a good book I definitely en- encourage reading it I know we're going to spoil it a little bit here um, it is from 1969 so it's not like a, we're in any kind of short spoiler range but uh, right. I do encourage you if you have not read the book and you don't want anything spoiled uh hey pause this go read the book and then come back because uh we we are probably going to spoil uh some major plot points in this book and the subsequent uh screen ad- adaptations of them we wouldn't be able to discuss them properly without discussing some of the major
0: plot points That's right that's right <clears throat> So, with all that being said, um, if at this point now, Eric, you have the book, the movie, and the miniseries, today could you pick which one you would rather rewatch or reread right now? Uh, the book. It would be the book. Okay. Yeah, hands all down. right. Um, Interesting.
1: There was, you know, my one complaint about the book is the way it ends in regards to the actual. The, the titular Andromeda strain itself, <clears throat> because it's not the star of the book. It really isn't. Oh. This is the story about the people and, and the lab. Yeah, the the people, yeah. the lab, the discovery, the the science of it all. The ending can come across a little anticlimactic. I, I get that. I, I've seen that in uh, other people's reviews of it. And they think, okay, all this work to build up this bug, and then it just it just mutates into something that doesn't kill people and goes away, like. Okay, uh, well, whatever, um but that's okay because the the story is not supposed to be about this bug, um, and I think if you if you're going into the story thinking that it's only about this bug and this bug is the most important character in the story, then you'll be disappointed by the book. <clears throat> but right. if you just read it with an open mind and allow the story to flow, then you won't be disappointed in that way. I fear that uh The people who wrote the screenplays for both screen adaptations, however, may have felt that way because we did get a little bit different endings out of both, especially that miniseries.
0: Especially the miniseries, yes. Uh, But I agree with you. So uh, before we recorded this, I had to reread the last chapter of the book um, because of the fact that... uh, it, this is never, ever about Andromeda Strain. They never set it up as being this horrible bad guy. Like I said, it's you know Andromeda Strain's not this huge antagonist like you usually get in the book, and this is all about the people and the science and the mistakes, the simple mistakes they made, which I can't wait to talk about the lab here in a minute. But I reread the end of it again, and I think it was Andos 5 or something was the satellite that they talk about in the end, and it's about how the satellite broke apart the plastic shielding, and that's how it crashed, and then it's the you know interview with the press section or whatever, but I realized it's almost a setup for the sequel because Andromeda Strain is not gone, it's just gone up into the atmosphere it is benign to killing humans but it's still destroying plastic and so it destroyed the satellite so it's almost like you set yourself up for a sequel kind of
1: Right? Yeah, it could be that if this grows enough, if it blankets the the atmosphere to where could we ever launch anything into space again without it being destroyed by Andromeda when it hits that layer It it Mm -hmm. does make you think that these are possibilities and whether or not he wrote that with the intention of maybe coming back and writing a sequel or whether or not it was just one of those, you know, sometimes writers just like to leave things open for the sake of leaving them open. So you
0: never know. Yeah, it's a good discussion point that it leaves you with a a little bit of a question. But for the most part, it really does end everything, uh, you know, but you kind of feel bad for the scientists because – They didn't truly figure anything out. If it wasn't for the nuclear um, bomb and the fact that they had to shut that off, there was no super intense moments with these scientists where they had to save themselves. Right. And that's what makes this book very different from a movie or anything you would see now is these scientists are not having to go on a limb to save themselves. They're not in a huge rush uh, to save everybody else, especially they believe that there's been a nuclear bomb dropped over Piedmont so that everything's fine. And they think they have all the time in the world. They don't realize what's going on above ground.
1: Yeah, they say it several times. They're like, well, we've got the only live strain of the bug right here. We don't have to worry as long as we keep our as long as we do our protocols and we make sure that we're uh, sterile and and do everything that we're supposed to do on our side. We don't have to worry about up there because it's already been taken care of. They think right, and they've mentioned it, yep. they mentioned it several times. Like, well, on the surface, it's been taken care of already. They they mm-hmm. did the code seven twelve. They bombed the the city of Piedmont, uh, Arizona in the book. It's mm-hmm. Another yeah, interesting we'll talk point about that, you hey? brought up. <laughs> 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 so they bombed this town. They think, and um, it, it's. Yeah, so they're, they're in their own little world, literally. Yeah. Um, they've yeah. got this, this underground bunker that goes five levels down uh, with each level being a higher level of decontamination. Uh, to the point where, at one point, I think it was, is it on level three or level four where they have to put in the suppositories to kill. Yeah, off it was like level flora. four,
0: and then <laughs> and and between three and four to get to it, you had to swim through, um, uh, you know, a tunnel, or whatever. But that was only in the book. Yeah,
1: yeah. interesting though. If you recall, in the movie, the character of Doctor Levitt does allude to that. She talks about nearly drowning, whereas mm-hmm. in the movie, they only show them going through their only their feet are getting wet. But so evidently that was changed at some point because the line is still there indicating that they had to go to that they had to be submerged or at least almost submerged.
0: But the scene's not there as if it got left on the cutting room floor somewhere. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Or they they changed it because there is a scene of them walking through a liquid Mm -hmm. um, where they've got, you know, it's just covering their feet.
0: Which is interesting. That's one of the things that there's also that scene in the miniseries. And all three of them do have Piedmont, even though they're all different states. Which and is, the other did you thing, ever
1: find? I know you were looking into that to see if you could find a reason for I the change. Couldn't
0: find, I couldn't find a damn reason. I was really <laughs> pissed off because the book's in Piedmont, Arizona, and the movie's in Piedmont, New Mexico, and then the uh, miniseries is in Piedmont, Utah.
1: Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. Um, just one of those <laughs> small things that changed just enough between each iteration of the story. And it's like, but why? <laughs> right. Well, I think all I three take it times the next because... major. <laughs> yeah all three times the next major danger is las vegas like they always talk about vegas being the we can't let it get to vegas
0: Mm -hmm. Um, that's the the big population right there yeah yeah.
1: you know they talk about um when it's in piedmont arizona in the book they do talk about phoenix they mention phoenix Mm -hmm. but then you know all you know the wind is always pointing the other way so they quickly forget about phoenix and they're like yeah no we got to worry about we got to worry about Vegas over here, especially because the actual wildfire lab itself is actually closer to Vegas in the book Mm -hmm. than in any of the other films. That was the other thing. I wasn't 100 percent sure. I believe in the movie and the book they had the wildfire lab in the same general
0: location. In Nevada, yeah.
1: I don't recall off the top of my head if if the miniseries had it in the same place or if they had moved it around.
0: You know, and I I, don't—I do remember that, you know, it was still a five-layer lab and everything like that. They still showed that, but I don't recall if they mentioned if it was in uh, Nevada or where exactly that lab was at, so— the other thing that ran throughout all three—oh, and to go back to the Piedmont thing, I think part of the reason that Eric and I are a little bit is we're both from Arizona. So we kind of take it personally <laughs> when you remove our, our home state out of the uh, the movies uh, versions of this Yeah, book, you read the so. book, you're like, yeah, Arizona, all right, they yeah.
1: mentioned us. Maybe a fictional yeah. town, but at least they also mentioned the real town of Phoenix and— uh, mm-hmm. Uh, but then, yeah, they changed it in the movie, and I was like, okay, well, what, seems what? odd. Like, I thought yeah. maybe it was—my original thought when I saw the movie, The first movie was that, okay, maybe they're filming on location, so they changed the name to where they were. Uh, right. But I couldn't find any information indicating that that was the case. Uh, as far as I'm aware, this was still all shot in a soundstage in California, so <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> no.
0: I know. Well, and, and Piedmont is a ghost town in Arizona, which at someday I'm going to drive by. Apparently, the only thing left is a sign that says Piedmont, and it's off a railroad track. Um, but it's in Yavapai County, so up uh, by uh, the Date Creek Mountains. So I've got to head west in Arizona sometime, and I'll take a selfie with the sign and post it. Eventually, yeah. I'll get up there. So
1: <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Yeah, get some pictures and uh, throw those up on the Facebook page. Which yeah. We, uh, yeah. We, hey, good enough time to plug our Facebook and Twitter pages. Um, we... One of our goals with this show is to interact with our listeners. We want to hear from you. We want, to, we want to give you content that you want to hear, and the best way to do that is for you to tell us what you yes. want to hear. Um, we've made it as easy as possible. Um, we have an email address, info at Crichtoncast.com. You can also visit the website, Crichtoncast.com, and uh, we are available both on Facebook and Twitter at Crichtoncast. Wait, so was, it, is, was... <laughs> it is very, very was... simple to find us.
0: Yes, I was going to say, wait for it, wait for it, <laughs> Crichtoncast. I mean, you can't go wrong there. Very well done, Eric, when you set all of that stuff up. So you don't need to worry about some stupid underscore or anything else or a dot. It's just Crichtoncast. You will find us anywhere. Uh, and we do want, we want your either questions, maybe you read one of these books and you're curious on it, and we're going to eventually talk about them and all their adaptations, or you've got some fact You want to let us know, and we will completely share that um, and give you a shout out on the episode. So please, anything that you may want to know or you do know,
1: know why Piedmont changed location three times.
0: (laughs) Oh man, I feel like if somebody could give me a really, really good reasoning for that, I will get you a iTunes or a Google Play gift card because I it's been bothering me for weeks now.
1: (laughs) There it is, folks. We've got a challenge. Social challenge. Get out there. Find out why they moved Piedmont three times. Let us know, and we will hook you up.
0: Yeah, Steve needs to sleep better at night. (laughs) (laughs) So another thing that continued throughout all three of these is uh, Directive 712. It was still called Directive 712 uh, throughout all three when they drop a nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. I appreciated that, and the reason I appreciated that is because did you notice in the first movie adaptation the phone number that he had to call for initiating wildfire, the card changed. In the book, it was call 87, and in the movie, it was the number 21 on it. Hmm yeah and small detail in the I had book not picked up on in the book they did this great description again about how he had to change it over to a uh, binary sequence the eighty seven mm-hmm. of one and zeros to figure out what the phone number was uh, so there was this entire scientific thing, so you couldn 't just like dial eighty seven and know right. who to call or anything like that. Um, but then in the, uh, in the movie, he, he's got the same card, but it says 21 instead of 87. And I have no idea why, but he dials the phone number and that's how he calls on wildfire, which is this group of scientists who are here to, uh, contain and study and find a cure for the Andromeda strain.
1: That's uh, interesting. I wonder if it, it comes down to like maybe some one of the producers or the director or somebody's favorite number is twenty one. You know, like we see, mm. we see repeating numbers in many other TV franchises and uh, movies from time to time. You know, you get you know, Lucas likes to slip one one three eight into everything because of his yep. first film, um, Star Trek. The number forty seven appears. Continuously, uh, for for reasons only because it's liked by somebody.
0: <laughs> right. Well, and uh, in the X Files, uh, uh, Chris Carter's birthday is October thirteenth, and so ten thirteen occurs frequently throughout X Files. Whether it's a door or whatever it is, you will see that number ten thirteen all over the place, and that's because that's his birthday. Yeah. yeah.
1: So it's possible that twenty one was in reference to that somewhere maybe it was somebody's kid's college football number i don't know but um, (laughs) who knows (laughs) that could be that when it's not important to the story when it's not like scientifically necessary i don't mind when they change small details like that but I, i i do get curious as to why right was it something that just was a preference or was there some other was it random was it like okay we need a number somebody write a number on this card you
0: know, <laughs> <laughs> they drew straws for whose number was going to be it. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, so. and I think I was just, you know, I'm just being extra nitpicky this time around. I have watched this movie already multiple times. And I was just like, you know, if we're going to really discuss this, I'm going to pay a lot of attentions to these. And there were just a lot of the small details. Now, let's talk about one of the big glaring details. Dr. Levitt is a woman in the movies. Yes. And um, they were all men and male in the uh, in the book. What's your uh, your thought there, Eric? I mean, I've got I've got a couple just based off the fact this was you know filmed in 1970 and <laughs> you know, released in 71 and stuff. So, um, well, we'll talk about this much more in just a little while. <clears throat> but I think this is an
1: example of a, a, a somewhat uh, forced diversity where they're like, okay, well, we've got this we've got this book that's. Entirely white males um, well, how can we how can we change this up to, to branch out because they want people to watch it in order to want to watch it, you want to feel connected to it and to feel connected to it, you want a character in that thing to represent you in some way right in the 70s, especially the early 70s, as far as they were going to branch out, it was going to be adding a woman to the cast. Mm-hmm. I don't think it affects the storyline in any way, shape or form it, it, It's not important to the story that they be men. So, therefore, them changing it to a female does not make a difference to the story, so I'm perfectly fine with them doing it. It wasn't done in a glaring, in-your-face, we're-going-to-force-this-diversity-down-your-throat way. It was just done in a, hey, you know what? There's no reason why this character can't be a female.
0: Let's get a girl in here. And they did. No, And she actually, I think, added to it because she was an amazing actor. And she was not—she was a very— um plain Jane female. You know, she she I was completely sold that she was a scientist. Uh, yeah, they didn't you bring know, in a she, supermodel. She was honorary. The of... Yeah.
1: <laughs> they didn't they didn't bring in uh you know Dr. Christmas Jones from uh <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, we're gonna give you Denise Richards in a lab coat and you're gonna try we're gonna right. try to make you believe that she's a doctor. No, they gave us somebody who no. we would perfectly believe. Uh, was a doctor was a scientist uh with exce- with the exception of her pronunciation of uh, nuclear but uh, yes <laughs> <laughs> see see something did bother you uh-huh. aha <laughs> yes. but um yeah no i i felt no problems with that change uh because again while the book was definitely about these people it was much more about their discovery and that's all science based and there yep. was nothing in the book that forced any of these characters to be any specific race, any specific gender. gender yep. it, it didn't matter. They needed to be scientists. And we all know that anybody can do these sciences. It's not restricted, <laughs> you know, especially now. Uh, but back then, it would have been more restricted. If he'd have yeah. written that in the book, there would have been people saying, well, how, how did that happen? Because people were still a lot more bigoted. I, I wish I could say they're not bigoted anymore in that way, but unfortunately we've seen proof that that's not really the case. But it's much better now than it was then.
0: Yes. Yep. Well, and I, um, I had to do a little bit of research because I was curious why it was a female. And it was just uh, the director wanted a female, and I guess he had asked a lot of scientists— uh and they were all for it they thought this was a great thing because the science community could be like you said any gender uh, any nationality any race it didn't matter it was a science community which is their own you know thing it didn't matter whether you're male or female or anything like that
1: yeah it's it's all about the work it's all about like you said the discovery of it all um but yeah it's it's about the knowledge
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that doesn't have uh restrictions based on race or gender so
0: no I will give it to you that I believe of all of the future book and movie adaptions we're going to talk about that this one is probably, if memory serves, and we'll find out as we record more episodes, this is probably the uh, cleanest book to film adaptation of Michael Crichton's. I would agree with that.
1: Um, I, I, absolutely. Because this one, it does follow the story of the book fairly cleanly. It even uses some of the, you know, we see some graphics directly from the book in mm-hmm. the film. Um, some of these, these charts and graphs that you're talking about. And, uh, yeah, it really follows. There's some a few slight differences here and there, a few things that I wasn't quite sure why they felt the need to update. Um, for example, the lasers. Oh, yeah,
0: versus the darts. <laughs> why
1: Why were there suddenly lasers? Like, I could understand them updating some of the technology when we get to the 2008 miniseries, yeah, they're going to have to update some of this technology, otherwise it's not going to make sense. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't have a state-of-the-art facility for studying these type of things in 2008 that has the same equipment that you would have in 1969 or even 1971. Right. But the idea that you had lasers that somehow had the same effect on a person as the the Kurari tainted darts from the book... Like, whoa, that's, that's jumping a little bit ahead in technology there <clears throat> unnecessarily, I thought.
0: Right, yeah, just, uh, just a little bit. But um, I didn't realize that Robert Wise, uh, just how big of a directing career that he had, uh, because he had done uh, the, well, not till later, but the first Star Trek, the motion picture. Oh. Uh, he's who directed that, and then he also was known for. Um, I'm just trying to pull it up right now. The uh, uh, The Sound of Music, and all these other huge movies that I had no idea about. <laughs> it's so it not the, it's, it's
1: not a name uh, that I normally associate immediately with uh, with these big movies. But uh,
0: no, no, yeah, because I mean, one it's just all kinds. You know, the Body Snatcher and. Uh, um, oh, West Side Story, Citizen Kane—you uh, know he was involved in all these. So it—it it wouldn't surprise me that you know. I mean, at the time, I guess you know, hey, we can do lasers, cool. Let's do that. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> let's put a laser in this thing, since that's a you know that was the special effects of the day, and so that would make it look cool on film. It's exactly why we have Michael Bay with huge explosions today. So yeah, well,
1: <laughs> yeah. What, what's going to look good on film? And and I, I guess yeah, lasers look cooler than darts, but. Uh, I didn't feel it really made a whole lot of sense in the, yeah. in the context. So it did take me... I, I, I kind of judge films <clears throat> based on the things that take me out of the moment. If I'm watching a movie that's consistently bad from start to finish, nothing takes me out of the moment so I can enjoy it for what it is throughout its entirety. Yeah. When a good movie has spots of something ridiculous, it takes me out of the moment and glares at me. So a lot of times I'll end up thinking worse of movies that were good for the most part but had just a couple of glaring, like, what the heck was that moments as opposed to movies that are consistently bad from start to finish.
0: That is very true because it, uh, it ruins your uh, – I like to say it's just – it's disruptive and all mm-hmm. of a sudden you're thinking twice about everything else you're watching. It's just this hiccup.
1: Luckily, this one uh, happened near the end, so it wasn't something that uh, ruined the rest of your enjoyment of the film. And it's not a huge one either. It's just a little one no. nitpicking, really, when it comes down to it. Something that I probably wouldn't have even mentioned if we weren't specifically discussing the translation between book and movie.
0: No, no I can't wait for when we do the Congo because um, I've got some glaring reasons why <laughs> that is my least favorite <laughs> movie adaptation. <laughs> so... Yeah, I remember
1: that one being pretty rough. In fact, I remember that one, I remember disliking the movie enough that I almost, because I, when I had not read the book prior to seeing the movie. And I almost didn't read the book because I was like, oh, I remember that. I don't, (laughs) I don't need to read that. That was, that was awful. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually I did read the book. I was like, oh, yet another example of how does Hollywood manage to do this? Right. How do they manage to take this great work that should be very easily translated to the big screen?
0: Yeah, and, and, and that's just it. Yeah, you but you had to put your spin on it and uh, and ruined it, for, especially for fans of it. So. Yeah,
1: but uh, for The Andromeda Strain, you know, starting off, I would say that this is one of the exceptions to the rule as far as you still mm-hmm. get a good film. It's not the, the best ever, it's not the best film ever, but it's definitely worth watching. Uh, I would definitely encourage somebody who's read the book and is interested in seeing the movie who hasn't to to check it out. Um, I would encourage somebody to watch the movie who hadn't read the book or seen it, it because it's a good film.
0: It it is a good film. I personally would not have read the book if I watched the film first, because the film is so scientific like the book that it's Mm -hmm. extremely dry at points. Um, From a film standpoint, somebody who obviously got all his movie watching done in the 80s and 90s, uh, it seems slow. But because I've read the book, I was completely enthralled uh, in everything about this movie. But I think somebody, if they read the movie first, I don't know if they'd make it through the whole thing because it's a pretty scientific slow movie compared to today's genres.
1: If you compare it to today's movies, yes, absolutely. You're definitely mm. going to, it's going to feel slower and drier <clears throat> than these big, you know, you, you mentioned Michael Bay and his explosions. It's, it's definitely not that. Um, they do try to <clears throat> spice it up a little bit. Um, unfortunately, that's where most of my complaints lie is when they change things for the sake of trying to make it more exciting. Um, when it, it's, I don't think it's necessary. You're telling a story. It doesn't have to be, and every movie doesn't have to be an action movie. You can have right. moments of action in a movie without it being full on action all the time. And I think that's something that's sometimes lost these days. We see these movies that are just action, 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 action. And yeah, they're fun to watch, but. You're not really getting as much storytelling. I enjoy the storytelling, and uh, yeah, I, I would say <clears throat> if if I was talking to somebody with a short attention span and I knew that, then perhaps I wouldn't recommend this particular film to them. But <laughs> yes. as fans of of science and science fiction, especially the the type of science fiction that's just this side of plausible, you right? Know? And that's that's what Crichton specialized in was mm-hmm. science fiction that was yes, it was fiction, and yes, it was out there in some cases, but he explained it well enough to make it just this side of plausible. We're like, okay. And in fact, some of his stuff, I mean, you look at Prey, and then uh, what was it?
0: Micro like a, and... Yeah, the micro drones that they just tested mm-hmm.
1: out uh, how long ago? Not very long ago. That yeah, but I read, I read that
0: book years ago.
1: <laughs> I'm like, oh, this sounds awfully familiar. <laughs> hmm
0: Well, and if you imagine, and I haven't looked it up, but when he wrote this, if it took him three years to write this book, he was writing this in 66, 67, 68, and Mm -hmm. uh, imagine computers back then. I mean, he (laughs) had such a forward-thinking mind on all of this stuff. That uh, just amazes me. And like you said, bringing up with Prey and Micro and all these other books that he's done, just it really is plausible because he's using enough of today's technology or technology that's right within our grasp that we think, oh, yeah, this is going on or this could happen.
1: I think a lot of times he's looking at things that are not necessarily in development, but things that have been theorized already right? and taking it to the, okay, well, let's assume that this is a thing. And then we go from there, let's let's assume that let's assume that we can pull dinosaur DNA out of a mosquito trapped in amber. Let's assume mm-hmm. that we can clone it from that. What would happen then? <laughs> you know, yeah, that's the type of that, I think that's the way his writing style is. And uh, in this book, he, he theorizes. Okay, well, let's say we have satellites out in space that are collecting material that could be extraterrestrial in origin, or that there is. That's one thing in the book. It's never they don't find out. They don't no. know for sure. Was this something that was extraterrestrial in origin? Was this? Did this come from off of a comet or a meteor, or did it come from? Is it just something that is out there in our atmosphere already, that uh, just this satellite brought down, um, or is it something that started on Earth and went up there, and now we just brought it? You know, like. They didn't get an answer. And I think that's some of people's complaints about it is the fact that they don't you you don't get a a final answer on the strain itself. Right. I think that's okay because, again, we we look at it from a standpoint of that's not what the story is about, per se. It's Mm -hmm. just uh, it's a bit part. The Andromeda strain itself is a bit part in this whole
0: story. And it's the story becomes about human error. And he even talks about it uh, in hindsight in different points of this book that he says, you know, if if Levitt had just done this instead, you know, like dissecting the other rats mm-hmm. that had died from the strain, you would have realized that they had brain aneurysm. It wasn't anything to do with their lungs and the blood clotting. Um, but yeah, they, they didn't do that until later.
1: Originally, they think it's just clotting the blood. That that was their right. original diagnosis. Like, OK, the endronome strain clots the blood and it does it so fast that you die really quickly. And even when they pumped up this rat with blood thinners, with heparin and uh, things like this, it still happened. It just happened a little bit slower. So they were convinced that, okay, this is what's doing it. It's clotting the blood. And nothing could stop it. Exactly. <clears throat> it wasn't until later when they start discovering, like, oh, wait a minute. Now it's, now it's attacking the, the rubber polymers on this uh, military jet. What if it wasn't attacking the blood in the first place? What if the coagulation that we thought was the symptom or was the attack mechanism was just a symptom of what was happening? And that's when they discover that, oh, no, this body actually eats away the, the casing of the arteries and veins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what causes the, the clotting instantly because the the blood's no longer contained. And that would have made a big difference in them going forward. Ultimately, it doesn't make much of a difference because of the the way the strain progresses. But it may have made them a little bit more prepared for the way it eventually uh, transpired.
0: Right. Well, and it's um, one of my favorite, and this is something that bothered me. Oh, here we go. I found something that bothered me in the book. Are you ready? Okay. The entire multi-million dollar, whatever it was, lab is Mm -hmm. taken down by a damn piece of paper stuck in the bell. They did not get any of the special MCN communications because a piece—it it was it, a mechanical piece of paper—was stopping the <laughs> bell from dinging. So the one—that's all his job was. Which I loved that guy. All that this guard's job was was when the bell comes, I take it off of there and I bring it to you because that's a special communication, and that's like he said everything else is that's, automated.
1: That's my job. That's um, my job. Yes, that would have had to been some seriously thick paper to completely mute the bell. First of right. all. Right. Um, if it was just a standard piece of paper or even, you know, and especially if it's a teletype machine, that paper is usually fairly thin, actually, because mm-hmm. they want it to feed through cleanly and not get jammed up. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you would still, there should be still some sound. It may be muted. It may not be the ding-a-ling-a-ling you want, but you should still get a tunk tunk thunk. And if yeah. there's one person whose job it is solely to sit in that room and wait for that bell to go off, you'd think you would have noticed at some point the thunk thunk thunk. <laughs> that well, little it- bell. <laughs>
0: Here's the and this is totally being nitpicky, but the guys sitting there and doing nothing else, there's still stuff printing though. Because they're still getting news communications and all this other stuff. Because eventually they read from this pile of paper that's printing. Yes. So the guy never thought to go glance at what's printing out ever. That that's like, my he's just only. There. <laughs> well,
1: but that's that's not his job. His one job, no, job. is to bring that's it right. only if the that's bell right. rings because that's a special it, communication. It's it's tied into like a national service, so it's getting constant updates. So that's that's the one thing mm-hmm. where I would give him a pass on not hearing the muted bell because if that machine's constantly printing and it's one of these old-school dot matrix printers. Okay, It's going to be a lot of noise in and of all itself, right, so he's probably tuned that out. But now yeah, you're selling me on it. Okay, okay. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, because they did say it's, you know, it's one of the 20, so it's getting communications from all 20, and they're all getting the same ones. All right, okay. All right, Eric, you sold <laughs> me. I'm back. This, this book might be near perfect now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but,
1: <laughs> but I understand. But it also, it's needed to push the story along. So it's one of those things that even though it's a slight uh, plot hole, at the same time, it is kind of necessary. Because if they'd got that communication right away when it was sent, then they would have pressured for the 712 to be carried out. Because the communication they missed was the fact that the 712 had not been carried carried out. out. Mm -hmm. That they're working under the assumption that they have the only live strain of this bug. And so they can take their time. They can chill with it and and do everything slowly and carefully and make sure that no mistakes are made. All the while... You know, the bug's still out and about, and they don't know it. If they had gotten that communication, they would have pressured, as they did when they did receive the communication, and they would have pressured earlier than they ended up doing so, and it probably would have been carried out, which, as we discover, would have proved disastrous. Because it would have
0: fed... The strain. Yeah. yeah.
1: They discover yeah. at some point during their experimentations that it is directly converting energy to matter, matter being itself. It is multiplying Within. directly off of energy. It's not no waste products whatsoever. Right. And yep. so they discover that wait, a nuclear blast will not kill this, it will make it grow exponentially. You know, it will blanket the earth with this uh, Andromeda strain that is instantly lethal to humans if we drop that bomb. Mm -hmm. So the delay was necessary for them to get to that conclusion and stop that from happening.
0: Now, do we want to talk about the uh, dreaded (laughs) miniseries?
1: Okay. So So. as we discussed, the movie in 1971 followed fairly closely along with the book. As Mm -hmm. is to be expected when you make a movie only two years after a book comes out, you, you should hope that it follows fairly closely, and it does. So we're happy. We're good there. Then come 2008, they decide the story needs to be retold. A and E puts out this mini series, two-part mini series, only about two and a half hours total time between the two parts. Um, obviously, you're going to have to re-up the technology. You yes. Know, the same, the same technology that worked for a 1971 movie is going to look boldly out of place in 2008. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, no problem there. They also decided to change it. See, it, the book was like you were reading a report. The movie was set as in you were experiencing a congressional hearing on the whole thing as it 's happening i don 't think we mentioned that part um, right It still falls along with the book, but they add this element of your <clears throat> experiencing testimony in this congressional hearing about what happened so mm-hmm. that 's how we 're hearing about it. The miniseries throws all that out and says we're just going to we 're just going make a movie okay um, that's fine that 's a choice it 's not a make or break decision yet. Then they just start adding characters. <laughs> For no reason whatsoever. We have this reporter out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. But even with the reporter edition, the first half, the first part of this miniseries still follows fairly closely with the story. There aren't too many major departures.
0: It's still Piedmont. There's still, you know, they take this satellite that crashed down into the town and everybody dies. You still have the calling of wildfire, um, you know, and everybody's, you know, like taken in the middle of the night to the secret facility. Uh, So there are a lot of similarities there. Yes.
1: Um, The big difference, like I said, is you have the addition of instead of just hearing from these individual scientists and limited information from the military overseers that are running this thing. Now we have this reporter running around finding out about information, um, and so he's he's added to the mix, so to mm-hmm. speak, but still keeping the story fairly, fairly true. Um, you do have <clears throat> a lot more of the forced diversity I was talking about before, a lot more. So much mm-hmm. so that it looks like they went down a checklist. And we're like, okay, we need an African-American. Check. We need a woman. Check. check. We need an Asian. <laughs> check. check.
0: Um, I, I, yeah, Levitt, Levitt is now an Asian male in this one. So, yeah. yes, white yeah, so, male, white female, Asian male now. All right. Yes. And then we have uh, Viola Davis. So we've got the African-American and a
1: female checked off at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We, it was definitely – and then it, it made it even worse when the uh, – Doctor Hall character, which is no longer Doctor Hall, um, when they make his character inexplicably gay,
0: gay for no reason, Mm -hmm. completely. They still talk about the odd man hypothesis. They still mention odd man, but now he's gay.
1: Yeah, except we're led to believe that nobody knows it that it's that it's a secret that that's not the reason he's the odd man. Mm -hmm. He's still the odd man because he's a single, unmarried. Military male. type person, right? Um, yeah, single single male uh, military type person, and so that is why he's chosen as the odd man. But yeah, they just throw this literal throwaway line to be like, "Hey, by the way, we've got a gay here too." I was like, mm-hmm. okay, <laughs> why?
0: Uh, they were they covered all. <clears throat> Everything, yeah, you're covered. Really, movie. really
1: in your face. Like, I, I don't have a problem with it. Again, the character doesn't need to be straight. The character Mm-mm. doesn't need to be gay. It, it doesn't make a difference in the world in the character, so it's not a bad thing. It's right. just glaring in your face. Diversity checklist time. It, it it does take you out of the moment because of it. So that 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 was my complaint on that. Although I will say the act, you know, the acting talent that they chose for this, uh, you know, phenomenal level of acting talent. Yeah, I mean because like where uh, it all went, but
0: no, I know. <laughs> yeah, Eric McCormick was the uh, uh, the reporter, which he's now in a new series on Netflix. Uh, um, I think it's on Netflix of yeah, his the, own. The and yeah, Benjamin. have you seen? Yeah, them? the Travelers. I've uh, watched the first couple of episodes. Yes, it is yes, very very good. I encourage you to watch
1: the rest of it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very much hoping they get picked up for a second season because they they very much leave it open for that. And it was very cool. It was very good.
0: Yeah. But then, you know, Benjamin Bratt, which was popular in the 2007, like you said, Viola Davis and mm-hmm. Ricky Schroeder was uh, yeah. the, uh, the gay uh, Dr. Hall or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> what did they? Co- uh, he,
1: wasn't, he wasn't Dr. Hall anymore. Was oh, it? They changed and I his can't name, think didn't what they? That was they the did. other thing it I noticed th- that they, uh, they changed some of the names around. Names.
0: Oh, and we didn't talk about it. But odd, the odd man hypothesis is also something completely made up by Michael Crichton and not a true thing. Oh, okay. Yes. So I, that was another thing that I looked up, and he, again, he does such a good job of explaining. I think two two and a half pages was w- to just how they came up with the odd man hypothesis and their trials and their tests, where they decided that a single, uh, not white, but a single male was the best person to be able to shut off a atomic bomb because they would think the most clearly versus anybody yeah. that was married or female or anything more like specifically that. But that than was that they
1: would be more likely. To be the one to allow the bomb to, to go. To allow off. it. That yes. that was really the, the deciding factors. Who's gonna be the most likely to realize that their death was necessary to contain this thing? You know, right. And I guess the the idea being that anybody else who somebody who had a family would be emotional about leaving their family and might try to shut off the auto destruct and then You know, for dire consequences, because the auto-destruct only comes on if there's a major containment breach and there's risk of whatever infectious agent they're studying at the time getting out of the lab and thus, you know, possibly destroying the world. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Major Bill Keen is what they call him. So, yeah, I think the... I'm going through here, and I think the only names they kept were uh, Dr. Jeremy Stone, still Dr. Jeremy Stone, that was Benjamin Brad. Um, They kept Major Manchek... Although I don't know if they, I don't know if his first name was ever mentioned in the book or original movie, so I don't know if they changed the first name or not. But as far as I know, I'm just looking at the cast list for the miniseries, and those are the only two names that jump out at me as being the same. The same names, yeah. Uh, we got Jack Nash, who's the reporter, who's added in, and then we have uh, Angela Noyce is uh, one of the other doctors, played by Christina Miller, who uh, I had only seen, as far as I know, the only thing I've ever seen her in was Scrubs.
0: Oh yes, <laughs>
1: uh, we got Daniel yeah. Day Kim. We forgot. Yeah, that that was our uh, Levitt character is now Doctor C. Chu, and uh, played by Daniel Day Kim, another fantastic actor. Not on display in this series, <laughs> but no, we no. know him to be a good actor. We now. know you can do this. <laughs> yeah, uh, really. I felt uh, Eric everybody just... was the strongest <laughs> acting presence in this yeah. miniseries. Uh, for me, I, I don't know how you felt about it.
0: No, I definitely think so too. Yeah. The uh, Of all the things that they introduced in the first half of this... I mean, they even introduced... That's right. It was in the first half, I believe, that Project Scoop was part of an investigation into a singularity or a wormhole. Which, okay, that's plausible. You're still just collecting stuff from space, which is yeah. what Project Scoop was in the book. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't a completely big thing. But at what point did this jump the shark for you? For me, the biggest turning point
1: was quite literally the very beginning of the second part. Okay. When Okay, so... In the book and the original movie, we have a plane crash because it flies over the infected area and the Andromeda strain eats away all of the rubber uh, polymers in the plane, thus causing it to crash. In the 2008 miniseries, they chose to make this plane crash actually the plane that was supposed to drop the bomb to complete the 712 that's finally uh, finally acknowledged because they, they had held off, they had held off. Finally, the scientists say, no, 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 you got to do it, you got to do it. And then they say, oh, no, no, don't do it, don't do it. And the plane's flying over, and that's the plane they chose to have the Andromeda Strain disintegrate and crash, but not before rearming the bomb and setting it off. In the miniseries, the bomb goes off. (laughs) What?
0: (laughs) What? Yet now we have a nuclear explosion.
1: Uh, At that moment, I was like, okay, they have completely ignored the source material at this point. At this point, no. somebody said, nuclear bomb, and somebody else said, okay, we're setting that thing off. That's yeah. it.
0: <laughs> That's we're not it. having two
1: is... nuclear devices in this movie, and neither one of them go off. Come on. Right.
0: If we're supposed to shut off the other one, we've got to blow this one off. And so now <laughs> it is no longer an adaptation, but it is just a retelling of the story. At this point, you're completely gone from the source material. And at this point is when they truly make the Andromeda Strain
1: the antagonist of the film.
0: Yes, because now it's— They make
1: it a it's... character. They make it a sentient Character,
0: <laughs> because that's one of the theories that they talk about. What if uh, it knows everything and knows, and it attacked that plane because it knew that it was going to feed it, and, exactly. and that's what happens. And yeah. it grows It and wanted the stuff. bomb
1: to go off, which then you know makes you wonder: did the did the strain prevent them from receiving that communication in the first place? Was that you know? Because now they're talking about they, they've discovered <clears throat> that separate instances of the strain can communicate with one another and adapt instantly. And they find an antibiotic or an agent of some sort that is able to kill the Andromeda strain yes. once. But they do it one time, and like the Borg, the rest of them adapt instantaneously to, to be pr- protected from this particular strain. So they're like, we can't kill it. We can't kill it. Um, until they discover that hidden within the material that the strain was sent from the wormhole in is a
0: code.
1: What? <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. <laughs> they find this code in binary, because they're, they're trying to figure out, it's like, oh, well, this material that is sent, it's a futuristic material, buckyballs, they called it. Um, yes,
0: and it, it was uh, potassium and rubidium or whatever, atoms that aren't supposed to be there, shouldn't be there. and Yeah, they've got this
1: binding material. Like, why did they use two different binding materials? Why not just one? It would be simpler. It would be easier. And then Mm -hmm. they discover a binary pattern within the bonding materials that somehow they're able to magically figure out the start and end point to. Whatever. Um, And this binary code prints out a number and the name of a particular bacterium that only exists in the deep, deep sea next to uh, volcanic fissures, which that's the other, that's the subplot going on in the background, is that the president is about to announce this this mining of these deep sea fissures. Right. So there's, there's your environmental aspect. They had to throw that in there to to be like, hey, look, we're, we're going to be we're doing all these horrible things to our Earth, and it's going to come back to bite us because we're going to end up with this— uh, disease that can only be killed by these bacterium that live only here
0: and i was wondering in watching this why it was i keep seeing these news things and this thing about this underwater mining and it was just uh foretelling for oh because um by destroying our earth we are destroying ourselves is what i've learned now
1: (laughs) yes um, so they have this, yeah. They have this binary code which prints out this number that they they never figure out what the number is. We get a glimpse as to what the number is at the end of the film when they, we mm-hmm. get a little foreshadowing or whatever. You, <laughs> when it throws back to, oh, this is how it all happened. Like we're we're repeating this cycle.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, you know, we if the messenger theory that they talk about is correct, then we sent this back to warn ourselves, and it's just happening again. Uh, so nothing has changed.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's—so we get this number, and we get the words uh, Bacillus infernus, literally bacterium from hell, is mm-hmm. what they call this thing. And it, it, from what I understand, that is a real thing. They're talking about the actual bacterium itself. They've ha- they have found this, this uh, bacterium that does live in these extreme temperatures and extreme pH levels next to these uh, vents where there's a lot of sulfur. Um, and that's, that's the other thing is the, the Andromeda strain is now sulfur-based— Okay.
0: Oh, yes. Yep.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay, sure. Why not? Again, by itself, a minor difference that wouldn't really have a major impact on the story. But, yeah, just all of this, all of this stuff that just, like, it just, it just takes such a weird turn. And, you're like, I guess if you had never read the source material, you wouldn't know what a departure it was. And maybe you'd be okay with it. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I say maybe because this miniseries did pretty much universally get... Uh, Panned. Nobody really liked this very much. It was not. um, I when I was trying to find it to watch it, I went to A and E's website, thinking maybe they would have it there or they would at least have reference to it to where someone could obtain it. Uh, No, you will not find any reference to the Andromeda strain anywhere on A and E's website. No I ended up finding Can, it on Amazon on dVD for like seven bucks
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what I was say I, I couldn't stream it on Amazon or hulu or netflix i just i could not stream this anywhere i could i I could find um the original movie and mm-hmm. rent that for a dollar ninety nine or whatever but I could not find this mini series anywhere yeah. uh, which goes to say something you're right if if I really did set it aside, I would have watched this once and that would have been it because it uh, it just didn't pull you in as much. There were too many changes from the original story. But also, like you said, if you didn't even know the original story, um, it seems too convoluted. There's too much going on. Where in the original book and the movie, we're really just talking about the science of discovery and human error.
1: Yeah. And you still have, you know, they still have the final scene where they have to stop the, the bomb in Wildfire from going off. While at the same time, we've got the military trying to combat the actual infection that's now spread way over because, of course, they set off the bomb. Um, so now you've got you, your attention is split now. You've got the mm-hmm. one major action sequence that really is the, the, the pinnacle of everything in the book and the original movie.
0: And the movie, yeah. yep.
1: And now it's, it's almost secondary to what's it's like okay well it doesn't even matter what happens in this lab now they got to deal with this stuff up on the surface like who cares about these people in the lab and mm-hmm. that's who the movie's supposed to be about that's who the story is supposed to be about is these people in the lab and the miniseries made it so that you didn't care about them because there was too much going on outside so <clears throat> that's where i really think they made the mistake they tried to make it more exciting and they ended up departing so far from the original story that you didn't care about the original story anymore Right. So any environmental message they were hoping to uh instill is definitely not going to be translated <laughs> because you you just you're not really caring at this point.
0: Mm-mm. No, and I uh you're not even that attached unfortunately to the fact that uh, a lot of these characters died, which they did not die in the original book or anything.
1: That is true. Um, That's another thing where they, again, uh, I think they're trying to inject drama that Mm -hmm. may have been unnecessary, you know, um, killing these people, (laughs) killing them and uh, cutting off their thumb.
0: The thumb? Because we (laughs) still need. Well, that's what I'm thinking. When. uh, wasn't uh, keen. What was his name? But when he, when he dies, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. You need your thumb to still deactivate that thing. And then all of a sudden, yeah, he the card, going he's like, down. You're gonna need oh, this. And I was
1: like, yeah, he's gonna need your hand too. Oh, oh yeah. There he goes. Okay, he's got it.
0: <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, and then, and well, and then even the assassination of uh, Manchek and the other uh, Colonel guy or whatever at the end. I they're just uh, it, it leads to all this. Now all of a sudden it's this whole you know government conspiracy theory because there was yeah. a part of the government that's taking out all of the Andromeda strain on Earth, but then there's this other part that wants to study it for its biological weapons tendencies. And- yeah. And that's where yeah. we get the
1: the cyclical nature, because then we find them that they're storing the you know they were told they told everybody that all remaining samples of the andromeda strain had been destroyed, but yet they have this container with the mm-hmm. with the mark on it that they also found embedded in the the code somehow, and that number the seven three nine five two eight that they you find out that that's the number of the holding the little Locker storage facility that they have on a space station floating out above the earth. Um, Just knowing that we're doomed to to repeat everything all over again.
0: All over again. Yep. (laughs) Yep. And then that's the end of that. So all that said, uh, read the book, people. (laughs) Read the book. Um,
1: Yeah. Just just when you thought, hey, the Andromeda strain is a good example of when they can make a good movie out of Crichton's work. And then in 2008, they turn around and show us our original theorem was correct when they Hollywood proved. gets its hands. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just so many unnecessary changes. It, it's, it's like, why keep so much of the original story if you're going to change that much? Right. Like, what they did keep seems odd considering how much they did change. You know, you almost wonder, hey, why is it still Piedmont? It doesn't have to be. They could have changed that. Why didn't they change that to something more, you know, strategically important or something like that? You know, you start to wonder why did they keep the stuff they did keep when they were changing so so much? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that yeah, big the... thing. The bomb going off from that moment forward, it was a completely different story.
0: Yeah, it, it was. a second uh, part of it, the second half of the miniseries, was a uh, completely different story, which uh, if you want to go into it, if you have read the book and watch, if you can find the miniseries, obviously you're going to have to right now uh, buy it uh, on Amazon or something on DVD, but... If you want to watch it, just be prepared for the fact it is a completely different last half of the story. It is very science fiction at that point where the yeah. book is <laughs> leans more towards science. Yeah.
1: In, in the book, you're left wondering, uh, was this from outer space or was this something that was, you know, just uh, cruising about in our upper atmosphere? You know, not mm-hmm. outer space, but, you know, inner space, I guess. Uh, that's not the term they use for it, but, um, you know. Is this something actually extraterrestrial in origin, or is it something that is native to Earth, just not that we, we know of? You know? Um, it's left ambiguous. We don't know. We know it yeah. ends up in our upper atmosphere. That's where it can thrive and continue to, to survive in its current uh, form. In the movie, they leave it pretty much like that as well, you know, not a big departure. This one, they go completely different. No, this is a sentient entity that came to attack us. And it chose its moment. It picked its spot. Now, it seems that there's a little bit of a paradox as to where it originated from because did it come through the black hole or did it just use the black hole to send it back in time mm-hmm. to kill it? <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> you're like you're left it's... wondering, but not in a good way. Like the book leaves no. you wondering in like, a, OK, that's interesting kind of way. The movie mm-hmm. just leaves you like, what the it's going on here kind of way no
0: no that's very true and uh, because did it come back to now plant itself here and yeah there's just so much that we actually unfortunately need to move on from it because it's just gonna make us mad <laughs> <laughs> um, um all
1: in all you know if, if you're a fan of the book and the original movie either or or both it might be worth a watch just for the same reason we watched it essentially to compare and to to think about the differences if you're not that into it I would definitely say skip the miniseries, especially yeah, since mini-series. it's going to be so hard to find if you don't already have it. You know, they're not replaying it on A and E for you to DVR. It's literally buy the DVD from Amazon, which I'm I'm not even sure. I think I think I got it new, but I still think I got it from a private seller new. I don't think it was like from A and E or anything like that. So, yeah. I think it was just somebody had it and hadn't opened it. Yet.
0: <laughs> yeah, though. No, yeah, they realized what they had. Well, and you just have to treat it as the uh, B sci fi movie that it is, really, Mm -hmm. because it's not going to be the good science like the original.
1: It's definitely uh, made for TV in its uh, special effects qualities and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I said, the acting talent, you look at the names and you think that you're going to get top-notch acting, but either they were phoning it in because they didn't like the material or they had not grown into the actors we know they are now today, because the, the acting level is definitely not what you would expect when reading the cast list.
0: Right. The last thing that I have to comment on would be the original 1971 movie, and I did not realize this till I was looking at movie posters for it, but that movie is rated G, yet very clearly I was staring at a pair of women's breasts in that movie. Yes. Which was very interesting to me. And, the, it, you know, all when they're showing it, which is very neat how they showed them walking, looking through the doors and the split screens type mm-hmm. of thing. But then there's this picture of this woman dead, naked on the floor and they pan out and it becomes full screen. And, oh, there's her entire chest. And I'm thinking, yep. huh, this was rated G, but I clearly saw boobs on there. So <laughs> yeah, if you're if you're thinking you're going to watch this with your kids or anything, just know that there is nudity in this rated G movie. <laughs> yeah, you do, <laughs> get, you do get
1: a, a shot of uh, some breasts there. And I think, they, I think those repeat actually too later on when when they're remembering what they saw and they, they flash back to that a little bit yes, I think you, yeah. I think it's briefly shown again if I recall I know some of the other stuff is and uh, some of the some of the dead bodies and stuff are, are fairly gruesome for the time I mean it's I mean you'll see worse on network TV nowadays you know flip on criminal minds and you're gonna see 10 times worse than anything in this film right. but <clears throat> yeah it's definitely not the ratings were a lot different then the ratings were a lot different, and what gets you a stronger rating now would not necessarily have gotten you that strong rating then. I think the fact that there was just simply no language and no—there um, there was no violence, really. There no no, like, person-on-person violence somewhat. You know, you, you don't see people shooting each other or fighting each other very much. It, it's nothing like that. So I think that's probably what got them that G rating. I don't know, maybe the sensors blinked when that scene was up, because normally that would have gotten you at least a PG right right there. I don't think PG-13 existed at that point, so wouldn't have got that.
0: No. (laughs) No. But but this has been good, and uh, I'm very excited about uh, our next few episodes. I'll be honest, uh, if we continue with this chronologically, uh, The Case of Need, I have never finished that book, uh, so uh, this is going to push me to actually finish that book. Yeah.
1: Um, I am currently a little more than,
0: uh, I should say a little less than
1: two thirds of the way through. Um, Mm -hmm. I will say it's a little bit, uh, harder read than Andromeda Strain was a little bit more technical details, um, but not hard read, just a little bit harder. And the, the subject matter is not, uh, as fun. I would say not that a, you know, bacteria that kills people instantly is fun per se, but, uh, Mm compared to the subject matter of a case of need it almost seems fun <laughs> um that'll be that'll be more for that episode's discussion of course uh we'll, we'll try to keep it as non-political as possible and just discuss the story but uh right yeah it's definitely a little bit more politically charged topic in that one and uh of course we're gonna have to find the the movie adaptation of that to watch um as well
0: mm-hmm. so yes
1: that is what's to come hopefully in just a couple of weeks if we are able to to get everything together that's our our plan as of right now is to uh, to get an episode out to you guys every couple of weeks or at least twice a month and maybe not necessarily straight on uh two week schedule but as regular as we possibly can we don't want to keep mm-hmm. people waiting and since the material is out there and not like it's timely or anything like that. It's not like uh, you have to listen in a particular order. Feel free to jump around our shows when there's more than one of them to choose from and you know, pick and choose what you want to listen to and let us know. Like I said, contact us. Say hi. Like us on the Facebook page. Follow us on the Twitter. We're not going to bombard you with posts You know, every five minutes. We're just going to throw up a few things here or there. But really what we want to do is connect with you and have you uh, let us know what you want to hear.
0: Yes, and definitely, like we said earlier, discuss uh, any theories you might have on any of these books, any interesting facts, or any questions you might have. We definitely want to talk a lot about all this.
1: Yeah, we'd love to hear if you have any inside trivia, if you know anything about the book, the movie, anything about uh, Michael Crichton himself. I think we'll we'll have to get a little bit more into the man himself in future episodes as well. we'll kind of yes. uh, skip straight to the, the actual book and stuff this time around, but we will discuss uh, the man uh, of the author as well. But uh, we'd love to know anything that, if you know something that we can't find on Wikipedia or IMDb, we definitely want to hear about it. So let us know. And if you have a specific question about any of these movies or books that we're going to be covering, we want to hear that, too. We'd love to be able to answer your questions. If that means us digging and losing sleep trying to figure out why Piedmont is in three different states, then we will Ah. do that to try to find those answers for you.
0: (laughs) Please help me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So do you have any... uh, Final thoughts on any of the Andromeda Strain adaptations that we've discussed?
0: I do believe you should start this one out by reading the book and then watch that movie from 71 and then don't pay any attention to the miniseries. And just and that this is going to be one of those things, unlike some other ones we're going to talk about, where I'm going to tell you, watch the movie first. But I think read this book and then watch that movie. And you will enjoy both for what they have and they're similar enough that you will not be turned off by either one of them
1: absolutely i definitely agree with that Uh, normally when there's a book and movie already out um, i usually try to and i encourage people to watch the movie first and then read the book because you can enjoy the movie for what it is and then still enjoy the book even further whereas most of the time if you read the book first you're going to go into the movie and be disappointed Mm-hmm. Even if it's a good movie, you might still end up being disappointed because it doesn't have this one scene from the book that you wanted it to have or something like that. Right. This case, they are close enough, and the, because of the technicality of it, you will probably enjoy the movie more if you had read the book first. So I definitely agree. This is one of those rare situations where I'd say read the book, then watch the movie, and the miniseries, only for completists. <laughs> oh, <laughs> only if yeah, you there have you go. to say, I've watched them all like we did to discuss it. Um, But, yeah, hey, if you've seen all of these, uh, we definitely want to talk to you about your thoughts on it, too. So let us know.
0: Definitely. And thank you very much, everybody, for listening to this episode of The Crichton Cast.